the book of Kings, and we're going to look now at some of the, you know, stories, main stories and events and, and key people in here. Now, uh, Kings is an interesting book. There were three, um, three men who were having an argument over whose profession was the oldest. One of them was a surgeon. One of them was a, um, an engineer. And one of them was a, a politician. And so the surgeon says, well, listen, my profession clearly is the oldest because the Bible says that, you know, God took the rib out of man and made woman out of it. So that makes my profession the oldest, a surgeon, right? The engineer said, well, go back a little bit. Remember that God created the heavens and the earth from chaos. He he turned chaos into order, and that's the job of an engineer. So that makes my job the oldest. And then the, the politician says, ah, hold on a second. Who created the chaos? And that's kind of what we're seeing in Kings is that there's a lot of chaos going on here and, and certainly coming up. That's what we're going to be seeing a, a bit of, most likely a lot of, as we go through First and Second Kings over these next couple of weeks. You see, going back to First Samuel, we saw the people were desiring a king like all of the nations had, right? They come to the land and, and, and they've gone through this period of the judges, but now they're saying, we want a king like all of the all of the nations have. But remember, God desired to be their king. He was to be the one that was ruling the nation of Israel. So anyways, God grants them their request and he gives them Saul, right? Saul started out well, but didn't finish so great. Next up was David. Not the people's choice, but now God's choice for who's going to be the king. And so God raises up a man after his own heart. And David, of course, He's not perfect by any means, but he's humble enough to admit his fault and turn back to God in repentance. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. And so David, his reign ushered in a very united kingdom and showed what things would be like when a king allowed the king, God, to truly rule. But now as we travel through First and Second Kings, we're going to see that though there were some great blessing and unity under this reign of David and Solomon, well, things quickly spiraled into chaos. And that leads us into First Kings here, where we look at the kingdom united to see how it becomes a divided kingdom. That's essentially our outline that we're going to be looking at as we go through this Chapters 1 to 11 show us the united kingdom under David and and Solomon, primarily Solomon, because David's going to be out of the picture very quickly here. So under Solomon's reign, the united kingdom. But then we're going to see a divided kingdom in chapters 12 to the end of the book in in chapter 22. And that continues on into into 2 Kings, of course. And so we're going to see how when when a king comes onto the throne, if he's not allowing God to rule, well, things quickly begin to get pretty chaotic, right? Like I said, 1 Kings picks up where, where 2 Samuel left off. First and 2 Kings was written not just to be a, a comprehensive historical account. It is that, but it's more than that. It's written to document the rise and the fall of the Israel kingdom. Much of that was linked to the, to the reign of the kings. With each new king appointed to the throne, it brought opportunity for reform, right? Repentance, for a people to turn back to God and, and for God to come and, and bless that nation once again. So as we travel through these books, we see great attention given to some very godly kings, kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, as well as the ministries of godly prophets that, that come onto the scene here, guys like Elijah and Elisha. Yet, 
We also have the accounts of many kings who failed to walk in obedience and, and under the commands and, uh, and the word of the Lord. And that led to the division of the kingdom and ultimately to the fall of the kingdom. See, when the kingdom divided, we're, we're left with the southern kingdom known as Judah. And we're left with the northern kingdom known as Israel. Each of these kingdoms are going to have 20 kings in their history. None of them are going to be good kings in the north and only eight of them are going to be good kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. So we're going to see this division take place and and in that northern kingdom, just that continual spiral downwards. Now, as far as the, the author of the book, we're not sure who wrote this book. Many believe there's tradition that states Jeremiah. The prophet is the writer of First and Second Kings. That's not conclusive by any means. The book of 1 Kings is going to cover a period of about 120 to 130 years. Starts off from kind of around the, the death of David. Takes us all the way to the reign of Ahaziah, which is at the end of 1 Kings. So chapter 1 here, as we take a look at the United Kingdom, first of all, in these first 11 chapters, chapter 1 opens up with David now on his deathbed, all right? And his son, Adonijah, his fourth son, who is conspiring to get to the throne, to overtake the throne there. Look at verse 1. It says, Now King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him because he could not get warm. Now David is only about 70 years at this time. All right? Now that's not old, especially in, in this day that they're writing here when people live quite long, and, and even in our day. 70 years is not that old, right? Guys, can I get an amen out of anybody, right? I, I was hoping some of you would be like, yeah, amen. That's right. That's not old. Some of you might be feeling it, but it's not so much the case all the time. But yet, here we see David at 70 years old, and he's, he's very frail. He's weak. Even though he's only 70, man, he's lived a, a full life, and he's lived a life almost, you know, um, he's lived a... About seven full lives, in a sense, based on all the stuff that he's had to go through. You know, he's undergone, you know, Saul trying to hunt him down and take him out. He's undergone family betrayal. He's gone through adultery and murder. I mean, this guy's been through the ringer and it's taken a toll on his life. It's, it's been taxing on him. And sadly, David's not done with the drama yet because now it's Adonijah his son who's making a play for power he looks to seize the throne in his father's weakened condition look at verse 5 and 6 of chapter 1 it says in verse 5 then Adonijah the son of Haggith exalted himself saying I will be king and he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him and his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying why have you done so? He was also very good looking. His mother had born him after Absalom. So this Adonijah is Absalom's brother. And here he's kind of following in the footsteps of Absalom who also kind of, you know, um, betrayed and, and, and tried to usurp his father and the throne. And so Adonijah is doing the same thing now. And Adonijah is more of an opportunist than he is a a true leader. Because an opportunist isn't looking to make a situation better. They're seeking to use a situation to make things better for them. 
And that's exactly what Adonijah is doing. He's seeing his dad who's on kind of his deathbed and he's thinking, hey, this may be my opportunity to take the throne from him. Perhaps you already know Solomon's the next successor to the throne. But now Adonijah's going, oh, this may be my window of opportunity to get myself into that position. And Adonijah, what does it say there in verse 5? He's exalting himself. It's never a good way to go about doing things, is it? When we try to exalt ourselves, when we try to be the ones that make things happen and, and, and try to glory in ourselves or make things work for ourselves in that way. Look at what Psalm 75 or 6 to 7 says. For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. James 4, 6 and 10 goes along with this. It says that he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 10 then says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. The question is, are we ones that are trying to exalt ourselves, elevate or lift ourselves? Are we the ones trying to make things happen for ourselves? Or are we saying, God, unless you do the work, it's going to not profit. It's going to fall flat. Lord, you need to be the one that raises these things up, that brings these things into fruition. And yet Adonijah is doing the exact opposite of that. Now, here we get a little glimpse into some of the problems that were going on in David's life. Because remember when David fell into adultery, well, the word Lord came to him and said, you know, because you've done these things, well, there's going to be a, a sword against your own family. There's going to be difficulty, tragedy. There's going to be hardship within your own family. And we see, you know, all through, you know, Samuel and now hear that there's just dysfunction at work in David's family. Now, it says in verse 6 that his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? David never stepped up to the plate and challenged or confronted or rebuked or disciplined his children. He never once came and said, what are you doing here? I mean, I have to ask my kids that a lot. You know, what are you thinking? What are you doing? We have to come alongside and help. But sadly, David was never one to exercise discipline when it came to his kids. For whatever reason, David had a real problem with this and it only led to further difficulty within his family. David enjoyed anything but a happy home. Now, perhaps he was one who was aware of his own shortcomings, his own sin, and perhaps that crippled him or paralyzed him from being the parent that he knew he should be. Perhaps his own sin and the guilt of that sin caused him to think, how can I speak into my children's lives and discipline them when I myself have been so guilty in these things? And perhaps it was that that kept him from carrying out his duty and responsibility as a parent. Maybe you've been there. Perhaps you might have felt like a hypocrite for coming down your children for things that you're guilty of yourself. But listen, it is a super vital and important thing for us to remember how we need to take these things to the Lord and seek His forgiveness in our life and recognize when we do that we are forgiven. That all things become new. 
it's critical for our mental health and our peace of mind to recognize the forgiveness that is available to us in and through Jesus Christ. Because if we're consistently working through this own struggle of our sin and guilt and everything, then we're going to be paralyzed to parent properly. Or we're going to be paralyzed to just simply be the people that God wants us to be. And David, for whatever reason, did not discipline his children. Let that not be the case with us. David erred greatly not dealing with the sin of his children. May we be those that are coming alongside, not not putting a a heavy burden on our kids or thinking that we're perfect, but coming alongside in, in recognizing our frailty and yet what our need is, is to seek repentance, seek the Lord, seek his forgiveness and train up our children in these things as well. It's interesting that as you get into Proverbs, there's much there regarding the, the discipline of children. And who wrote the book of Proverbs? Many of the Proverbs, Solomon. Solomon, who's there in the family and in the home, perhaps seeing some of these things not being carried out as they ought to. Remembering the lack of correction carried out and the consequences that come from that. And notice what we read in Proverbs 13, 24. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Perhaps these are things that Solomon witnessed firsthand. And so let us be sure that as parents, we're not letting our past hinder us from carrying out our role and responsibilities in the present. Man, if you're struggling with guilt or sin, take that to the Lord, but understand that when we confess that, when we bring it to the Lord, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all our sin and let us from that place uh, of understanding where a new creation in Christ now come alongside our children and train them up in the way that, that they need to go. So with Adonijah now, he's making this play for the throne. He's, he's looking to get in there. And, and now both Bathsheba and Nathan, the prophet, who are in David's corner, they're, they're seeing this happening. And so they're coming to David to inquire, David, who's the man that you're appointing to the throne? Because here's Adonijah making a play. And we thought you had Solomon lined up, but what's going on? Look at verse 28 of chapter 1. Verse 28, then King David answered and said, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took an oath and said, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord, God of Israel, saying, assuredly Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So I certainly will do this day. So it's clear that Solomon is... is, Next in line to the throne. And so David is saying, okay, I've been slacking, but surely this day I'm going to make this happen. But notice what David says in verse 29, and I like this. Verse 29, he says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress. David truly had been through great difficulty, hadn't he? Man, the, the guy has had a tough life. Gone through distress and trouble. But here he says something wonderful. The Lord has redeemed me from every distress. The Lord who has taken care of me, who's delivered me and redeemed me, 
David was able to dwell not on the difficulties, but on the deliverance of the Lord. He's not sitting on his deathbed wondering, God, why, why aren't you preserving my life more? Why, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you take care of that? Why is, why is my family just in shambles? He's not blaming the Lord. He's looking at the Lord and counting his blessings. He's recognizing the deliverance of the Lord, not the difficulties he's had to endure. You know, we do well to remind ourselves when we're in a bind or we're in difficult situations to remind ourselves how the Lord has been faithful to care for us, to deliver us through each and every trial and trouble that we face. And you might be in a, in a bit of a trial right now where you're wondering, God, where are you? But God is right there with you and, and he's looking to bring you through. He's looking to do a work in you, through you. So often we're praying, Lord, get me out of this trial rather than seeking the Lord for what he wants us to get out of that trial. What does he want to teach us or, or, or help us to learn? Does he want us to grow just in that awareness of his strength that is sufficient for us in our weakness? Because sometimes the Lord allows these things to indeed train us up, to teach us, to reveal himself in an even greater way in our lives. Sometimes we want to get out of things so quickly that we don't get anything out of it. We fail to see what God wants to do in the midst of it. But understand that God is faithful, that God has done so much for us. Let's count our blessings. Let's, let's be sure that we're dwelling on the deliverances of the Lord, not the difficulties that we face. So David, right away, he doesn't fret or fear through this ordeal. He simply puts his confidence and his strength in the Lord because he knows that that God will be faithful. So as David is about to pass on, he wants to give Solomon now some final instruction and encouragement. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I like this. <laughs> chapter 2, verse 1. Now, the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. So be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. So David's work to Solomon here now is David is on his deathbed. Solomon's ready to take the throne. Here's what David lines up for him now. He says, be strong and prove yourself a man. <laughs> okay. You know, seems easy enough, right? But how does one prove themselves? There's, there's been many rites of passage that different cultures or societies have, have passed down. Family traditions of, you know, seeing that, that boy enter into manhood. Some of them are foolish. Some of them are crass. These rites of passage. But David says to do what? Verse 3, keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, his testimonies, as it's written in the law. Keep the word of the Lord. Follow in obedience. Prove yourself a man. Listen, it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot to follow the course of this world, to follow the streams of what culture is saying, but it takes a lot to go counter the flow of, of what culture, of what this world says you need to do. To go against the flow of this world, that's, a, that's where we begin to prove ourselves. That's when we begin to say, Lord, I'm not going to follow 
what's going on out there. I'm going to follow what I'm seeing right here in your word. Lord, I want to uphold the instruction that you've given to me. I want to live this life for you, not according to what my friends are doing, what this world is saying to do. I want to live according to you. So David says, be strong. Prove yourself a man. And you will do that when you uphold God's word. So man or woman, prove yourself before the Lord. Live out his word. Seek the Lord for strength in doing that. Now jump into chapter 3. We see a very interesting thing happen now. So Solomon is worshiping the Lord. He's in a place called Gibeon. He's offering up great sacrifice before the Lord. Again, a great start to his reign. He's just wanting to seek the Lord. And then the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream at night. And he says, ask what shall I give you? Verse 5 of chapter 3. At giving the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? Can you imagine the Lord coming to you and asking that? Basically giving you a blank check saying, what do you want? Whatever you ask, I'm going to give to you. Whew, could you imagine that? I mean, think about what you would ask for. What in that moment? You've got the Lord... At your disposal, in a sense. The omnipotent one. (laughs) And he's ready to just give you whatever you ask. What would you do in that situation? Would it be centered around material wealth? A better body? Revenge on those that have wronged you at one point? Where would you go to? Because what you ask for certainly reveals your character and what you are valuing in life. But look at how Solomon responds to this. Look at verse 7. Of chapter 3, verse 7. So Solomon says, Now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king instead of my father David. But I'm a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge his great people of yours. Wow. Now that's something that the Lord can get behind, right? I mean, that's awesome. Solomon's request is not self-centered. It's not about him. It's not looking to see how he can profit, but it's about how he can profit the people, how he can bless the Lord's people. He's recognizing a couple things. Lord, you've put me in this place and these are your people, Lord. So I want to honor that. You've given me a a place that I'm to be a steward over what is yours. So Lord, help me to honor you. Help me to do what is right in this situation. His prayer, his request revolves around not blessing himself, but blessing the people and carrying out God's work properly. You know, that's what should dominate our prayer time, isn't it? Lord, help me to be effective in carrying out your work, fulfilling your purposes, being a blessing to other people. So often we can get so self-centered in prayer. And it's not wrong to bring requests before the Lord. I'm not saying don't do that. But I think sometimes, man, we would do ourselves good when we stop focusing on ourselves and start focusing on other people, saying, Lord, I want to be a person that's carrying out your work and blessing other people. 
So Solomon's request pleased the Lord so much that God says, not only am I going to do this for you, but I'm also going to give you riches and honor. I'm going to just bless you. The very things that he didn't ask for, the very things that I'm sure God was thinking, oh man, I'm sure I'm going to you know, get the, the wealth stuff, all the you know, honor stuff. But Solomon doesn't ask for that. And, so, and, and God's so pleased. He's like, Solomon, because you asked for wisdom to do my work and bless my people, I'm going to give you riches and honor as well. That brings to mind the New Testament equivalent of that, Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Isn't that great? Solomon is a living testament of that. Well, the end of chapter 3 gives us a demonstration now of that great wisdom that Solomon had. And, and no doubt Solomon is so wise, so... A story unfolds at the end of chapter 3 where two women, one of the women had a child, uh, uh, another woman, you know, ended up taking this child, rolling over on it, killing it, and they come to Solomon, they're, they're fighting over whose child it was, and they come to Solomon, and, and they're like, this is my child, no, this is my child, and they're going back and forth, and so what does Solomon do? He says, somebody bring me a sword. <laughs> Let's cut this baby in half. We'll give half to this person, half to that person. Problem solved. Both of them can walk away happy that they have part of the child. Now you look at that and you go, wow, that's crazy. That's, that's insane. But what happened? The one woman whose child it wasn't, she's like, yep, sounds good to me. Let's do it. She just didn't want the other ch- mother, the proper mother to walk with this child. But the real mother this is her child. She doesn't want any harm to come to her. So she says, no, Solomon, don't let that happen. Let her have him. I don't want any harm to come. Solomon right away knows, I know who the real mother is. Great. Could you imagine coming up with a solution like that? And yet this is just this, that wisdom of the Lord put into practice. And many people were just blown away. In chapter 10, we get the queen of Sheba that hears about the, the wisdom of Solomon and, and all the wealth of Solomon, all the, the greatness going on in the kingdom. She wants to come and travel and see this all for herself. And she comes with, with you know, this testing and, and it was like riddles. And so they would just test one another and all these things. And she gives all these riddles to Solomon. He's just answering them. Like just, hey, what else you got? Man, these are fun. Nothing. You couldn't put anything past them. This guy was just wise. Well, in chapter four, Verse 20, we read this. Chapter 4, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So under Solomon's reign, the kingdom really just reached its zenith. Uh, This is the... The, the greatest expense they had of their borders, the largest that the kingdom had been, uh, really the most prosperous under Solomon's reign at this point. And yet still, it didn't reach the fulfillment of what God said he was going to give Israel and, and, and cause their borders to be when he spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. God laid out the boundaries. And yet, even in the, in the zenith, in the height of the kingdom, they still never reached the fullness of what God said he would give them. So not only was the kingdom you know, great at this time, but Solomon was excelling in stature. Look at verse 29 of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 29, And God gave Solomon wisdom 
an exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart, like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite and Heman, Chalcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Also, he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things and of fish. The, and men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Look at what this guy's doing. I mean, this guy could do it all. He was a zoologist, botanist, ornithologist, entomologist. I'm just like, if I can say those things properly, and he's doing it, you know, he's living this out. But notice, it says that God gave him understanding and largeness of heart in verse 29. I like that. Largeness of heart. It's a wonderful thing. Because there's a lot of people that are very wise, but they don't have much of a heart. Knowledge can puff up. A person can be smart, but very cold. And yet, here's Solomon with largeness of heart. But a person can also be all heart and no brains. And then you've got a sentimental, soft, weak leader. You need both. And here's Solomon with great wisdom, but God gives him largeness of heart. And I love the description we had of Jesus on our Sunday message in John chapter 1, where he came full of what? Grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Jesus came just largeness of heart, full of grace, and yet he was perfectly true. He was wise. He always spoke what was right and accurate. And and just a perfect balance of the two. And here we see Solomon operating great wisdom, but also with largeness of heart. I think that's so important to have. And not only was Solomon a man of wisdom, but he was a man of work. He was a man of action. Chapters 5 to 7 now really detail Solomon's building projects, which at the center of it, the most important, of course, was the temple. So chapters 5 and and 6 and and then moving on again, just kind of detail some of the workings of, of the temple there that was built. One of the greatest and most expensive of buildings. Now, the Midrash, which is really just a commentary on Judaism, it says this, the heart of the world is the nation of Israel. And the center or the heart of the nation of Israel is the city of Jerusalem. And the heart of the city of Jerusalem is the temple. In other words, you could say that the temple of Solomon is the very epicenter of God's plan and program on earth. It's the very center of the world and it was certainly the center of their social life. Now, there's no temple today. But again, we know, as you read through the word, there's going to be plans for another temple. We'll we'll talk a bit about that coming up here. But there was just a great amount of work and money that was poured into the temple. Some estimates have it that, you know, with all the gold that was used in the overlaying and the different furnishings and stuff like that, and the building that was built, estimate in comparison to the amount of gold that was used in, in today's value, some of it estimated up into the billions and billions of dollars in building this temple. That would make it the most expensive building ever built. And it wasn't a large building. 
This building stood, the temple stood 90 feet long, uh, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. It was double the size of the tabernacle that preceded it. That was just a tent, half the size, but now the temple stands in, in this height. And, and still, if you include all the, the outer courtyard around it, you're dealing with 14,000 square feet. This is not a huge place. 14,000 square feet. That was one pricey project, but worth every penny as it was the place now where God would dwell and choose to be the meeting place, the focus of worship of the Lord. Now, we're not going to take a lot of time going through these chapters and detailing all of the things of the temple. We'll talk a bit more about them when we get to Chronicles in a couple of weeks on our Wednesday night. And we've spent time uh, recently on Sundays going through Chronicles and then Ezekiel looking at the Millennial Temple. And we've talked a lot about the temple, so... I won't get into it today, but we'll say some of that uh, for, for later on here in Chronicles. But as everything came to a close, it, and it took seven and a half years for them to build the temple, uh, Solomon gathers now the people together for the dedication of the temple. So turn over to chapter 8 with me. Chapter 8, verse 26, and we'll jump into part of Solomon's prayer during this time of the dedication of the temple. Chapter 8, verse 26, says, And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. So here's that wisdom of Solomon kicking in now. He's built this incredible temple. Solomon puts it all in perspective though because he realizes that God is so much greater than this temple. He's realizing that God is so much bigger and beyond anything here. There's no way that this temple is going to be able to contain who God is. Though it's going to be a place where God says, here's going to be the central place, the place of focus to come and worship Him. He'll come and meet with Him there. Yet Solomon knows that, that God is so much greater than this. He's just putting this in perspective because it'd be very easy to begin to just kind of Worship the temple. Being like this temple and go, oh, ooh, ah, oh, this is amazing. Wow, I can't believe we have a, a place like this right here in, in our own backyard in Jerusalem. We get to come and see that, oh, this is amazing. Look at all the gold and everything. It'd be very easy to begin to worship this. And yet Solomon wants people to realize now, God's beyond all of this. And we can't put God in a box. We can't think that, that God is just going to dwell within man-made structures. And sometimes we do that, don't we? We think, well, I've got this way that I, I feel God's going to work and I'm going to just kind of keep him in this little box when God goes well beyond that. Now, the great thing is that God doesn't dwell at all in physical buildings. He dwells in people, the church. That's us. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 to 16 says this. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. 
Verse 16 says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? That's an incredible privilege now that, that he's made us to be the temple, the temple that he desires to dwell in. And so we recognize now that we don't need to be restricted to finding a place to worship God. The fact is that by his spirit, he is in us that we get to be those that worship him everywhere, anywhere, in all things, in every activity, in every place. Is he's allowed us to be the temple by which he's going to dwell in. And he's invited us in to come and worship him. We have access and fellowship with God now through his son and by his spirit. It's a wonderful blessing that we have. But let us be sure that we are maintaining that temple. Just as the priests would come in and they would make sure that the the bread was there, that the candles were burning, let us be sure that we're maintaining the temple, that we're keeping a place where, man, there's life there, where, where we're continuing on in just the proper worship of the Lord. Now, we come upon an interesting verse in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14. Jump there with me. 1 Kings 10, 14, it's a very... Ah, just something to think about. It says here, verse 14, the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Now you're thinking, well, well, what's the big deal? Well, there's a number there. And it's the only time this number, which is 666, well, there's only two times in the Bible that this number is attributed to a person. The first time is Solomon here. The second time is the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13, verse 18. Now, is that coincidence? Maybe. Maybe not. I don't believe with the Lord. There is coincidences. That's not a kosher word when it comes to the Lord. So perhaps, perhaps, this is picturing how how David foreshadowed the the Christ, who's a, a type of Jesus, and Jesus would come from that line and be a son of David. And then Solomon foreshadows the Antichrist. You see, Solomon started how? Full of wisdom and peace. How's the Antichrist going to come onto the scene? Full of wisdom and peace. He's going to usher in, as Daniel shows us, a, a peace treaty where everybody's like, oh man, this is the guy. This is the guy we've been hoping for, we've been looking for, that's finally bringing everything together. Right? He's not just making America great again, he's making the world great again. This is how people are going to view the Antichrist. And and he's a man of wisdom, of peace, where everybody's going to flock to him. And what is he going to do? He's going to usher in the rebuilding of the temple. The very thing that the Jews are waiting for, hoping in right now. What does Solomon do? He comes on the scene full of wisdom and peace and he builds a temple. Just as the Antichrist is going to do. And as we're going to see, Solomon began well, but he finished wickedly. The same will be said of the Antichrist. He's going to turn. He's going to show his true colors. And the nation of Israel is going to have to flee as Jesus directed them to do. Now is this foreshadowing? Or is this a fluke? It seems to me like it could very well be a, a foreshadowing of events to come of a, another man that's going to have the number of man, 666. So chapter 11, 
now sets the stage for Solomon's downfall. All right. So far, a lot of good that Solomon's done. Like I said, starts out well, but sadly, didn't finish as well. And really, not only is it Solomon's downfall, but it really becomes Israel's downfall as well. Look at how it begins here. Chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. But, (laughs) that's an odd way to start a chapter, isn't it? But, King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. That's a tough way to start a chapter right there. Especially after coming off all these great accomplishments of Solomon. But, but, that right there gets your attention and say, there's a change happening here. There's something that's kind of opposing it now. Like when you're trying to go on a date with somebody, perhaps, and you say, listen, you know, I really like you. I just think it'd be really neat if we could go out. And then you hear the person respond, say, listen, I, I think you're a really nice person. You're sweet and all. But it's like, you know what you're in for at that point. You're like, oh, forget. Nothing else needs to be said. You walk away, you know. Oh, you're sweet and all. But it doesn't go very well from there on in. And that's what we're going to see here in chapter 11. So it goes on to say, let's continue on verse 2. From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Solomon, where'd that wisdom go? He's intermarrying now. In that day, it was kind of a political strategy to marry four wives because then it kind of ensured that sort of peace treaty with other nations. But this was something that God had told the kings of Israel not to do. It's right there in Deuteronomy 17, 17. It's alluded to there in, in verse 2 for us of this chapter. But it says, Neither shall he, the king, multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. But Solomon doesn't heed these words. He's no longer exercising that wisdom. 700 wives, 300 concubine. Not only does he have a thousand wives now, he's got a thousand mother-in-laws. I mean, wisdom right out the window. That's like just, what are you thinking, dude? You've really gone out to lunch now on this here. But here he is. He's allowed a little compromise into his life, hasn't he? And it tried, yeah, a little. But you see, it starts by just one wife. Oh, maybe one wife is not so bad. Or, or two wives. Maybe three wives. That shouldn't be a problem. Oh, maybe one more. It's like going for that chip. Like just one chip. That's all it's going to take. I'll be fine. One chip. Suddenly you're half a bag in. You're like, how did that happen? Got crumbs all over you. Like, what did I just do? I was just going to have one chip. Compromise. It starts very slow and simple. Next thing you know, you're just like headstrong in the sin. That's the slippery 
slope of sin. Perhaps Solomon was thinking, ah, it's just one little area. Look at my track record so far. Expanded borders, built a temple. Is this, is this an area really to get all bent out of shape over? He allowed compromise into his life. And it began to spiral out of control fast. So that leads us now to chapter 12. So we see here that not only does he intermarry, but now he's, his heart is turned away from the Lord. And that's why we have to be so careful with what we're allowing into our lives. Sometimes we might think, I, I can handle this. I've got it under control. Solomon, I'm sure, may have thought, nah, come on. I've got this. What's, what's the worst that could happen? And yet, he sees his heart being turned away from the Lord. How we need to guard our hearts from things that will come in and oppose themselves against the Lord. Don't allow those things in. Protect your heart. May it stay loyal to the Lord. So chapter 12 comes now and here we see this next division of the book of 1 Kings and it is the divided kingdom. Chapters 1 and 11, the united kingdom under David and Solomon and now the tragic end of Solomon's life which takes us into the divided kingdom. After Solomon's death, Rehoboam, his son, takes the throne and, and he's confronted now by Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel to, to come to confront Rehoboam on the previous administration's heavy workload. Solomon had done a lot of great work, but, but he taxed the people pretty heavily. And so now Jeroboam is called by the group of, uh, of Israel to say, can you lead us and, and go before Rehoboam and say, Rehoboam, can you kind of ease up on us a little bit now? Because your father, previous administration, man, life was pretty tough. And so they go to him. Look at what it says in verse 4 of chapter 12. Your father, this is Jeroboam speaking to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. So he said to them, Rehoboam says, depart for three days, then come back to me. And the people departed. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him saying, if you'll be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he, Rehoboam, rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with them who stood before him. Rehoboam doesn't even pray about this. He hears the advice, the counsel, which is good counsel. That's good counsel for any leader. Be a model of servanthood. Be a model of humility. That's what they're telling. And and you know what? You do that, and these people are going to stick by your side. But Rehoboam throws out that counsel immediately. And he goes to just his compadres, his mates, that he grew up with, he's like, how do you guys think we should handle this? And they say, oh man, you know what? You got to take charge. You got to show these people who's boss. In fact, you need to come against them heavier than your father did. You got to make things even more tough on them than what your father did. Look at how that goes. Look at verse 16. 
Now when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house of David. So Israel departed to their tents. This now is the transitional point, the division of the kingdom. From this point on, as we move through the Old Testament, we're going to see these ten tribes making up the northern kingdom being referred to as Israel. And then these two tribes of Judah and Benjamin making up the southern kingdom, which will be referenced as Judah. From here on in now, this is a, a transitional point. And anytime you hear of Israel, it's speaking of the northern kingdom. And Judah, speaking of the southern kingdom, there's a, a division that's taken place. Rehoboam came against Jeroboam and the people of Israel and said, I'm going to make things harder on you. And they all said, that's it. All of Israel, to your house. All of David, you go to your house. And there was a split now. Now, of course, the temple is still sitting in the southern kingdom. Jerusalem's in the southern kingdom. That's a bit of an advantage to Rehoboam because people were required to come to the temple, you know, and and worship the Lord there. Celebrate the feasts. But as Jeroboam becomes the default king in the north, he's thinking he's got to find a way to stop people from going to the temple, going to Jerusalem. Because if they go to Jerusalem, to the temple, maybe they're going to... Get comfortable there. They're going to want to settle in there. They're going to say, ah, you know, just easier to live down here close to the temple. So Jeroboam comes up with a plan. Look at verse 27. Chapter 12, verse 27. Here's Jeroboam's plan. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore, the king asked advice. He made two calves of gold and said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. So Jeroboam's thinking, let's make a place of worship for them here. But not just the worship of the Lord, but of a false idol. Harkening back to the days when under Aaron, when Moses was up on the mountain, they created an idol thinking Moses is gone. God's left us. Let's create an idol. And they come up with a golden calf. And now Jeroboam creates two golden calves, one in the north of the northern kingdom, one the southern end of the northern kingdom, so that people would have access to these places of worship and, and be kept from going to the temple. Now, the, the rest of the book is a pathetic running parallel account of these two kingdoms and their respective kings. Eight kings in the north that we'll read in First Kings and four in the south, all of whom are also mentioned in the book of First and Second Chronicles. So the rest of First Kings gets pretty confusing with the narratives kind of bouncing back and forth between these two kingdoms and, and, and these different kings. Now the two consistencies are that the two sides fought each other regularly and that all of Israel's kings were horrible, rotten leaders and spiritual apostates. Like I said, 20 kings in the north, none of them were good godly kings in all their history. Only eight kings in the south of their 20 kings are going to be good godly kings. So the eight kings in in the northern kingdom that we'll read about in 1 Kings are Jeroboam, Nadab, Baasha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, Ahab, and Ahaziah. All of them idolaters, pagan worshipers. We're going to see just 
how none of them walked in the ways of their father David. None of them honored, followed the word of the Lord. In the southern kingdom of Judah, we're going to have four kings, Rehoboam, Abijam, Asa, and Jehoshaphat. And only the last two, Asa and Jehoshaphat, are going to be good kings that we're going to hear a good report of or read a good report about. Now, a great deal of that material now in the remainder of the book is reserved for a battle between a maniac monarch, Ahab, and a mighty man of God, Elijah. So Ahab, he stands out as kind of the worst of the worst of Israel's kings. Now other worst kings are going to come on the scene after him, but up until this time, he's setting the bar of wickedness. And it didn't help that his wife was Jezebel. She was a real Jezebel. That's, that word becomes synonymous with a, a witchy, rebellious, just evil woman, right? And so this is Jezebel. Jezebel was a Sidonian princess who introduced Baal worship and idolatry into Israel. So things really began to get bad. So God raises up a man now to combat this. Elijah comes onto the scene and he's a prophet of God and he's a real miracle worker. In fact, eight miracles are recorded in this book. So he comes on the scene here in chapter 17. So let's jump over to chapter 17, verse 1. Chapter 17, verse 1. And it says there, and, and Elijah, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, so Ahab this king, wicked Ruth's king, he says, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Hmm. So Ahab, this wild Ruthless man, and Elijah confronts him. But notice Elijah's deme- demeanor here. It says that he stands before God. And he announces that there will be no rain for three years. He's not trembling He's not bowing. He's not fearing Ahab. He's fearing God. He realizes, Ahab, man, you might be pretty ruthless, but I'm standing before God. I'm standing before the one that upholds my life, that takes care of me. And he confronts him. He says, there's going to be this drought now for for three years. And that was oftentimes kind of that sign of judgment of God. And that's exactly what God is doing here. He's, he's trying to wake up the nation of Israel to show, listen, you guys are following in, in idolatry and wickedness. And you're, you're breaking my word. You leave me no choice but to do this. But what God is doing is in the midst of their darkness, what is he doing? He's, he's shining a light and he's raising up a prophet like Elijah to be this light that will speak truth into their situation, to to seek to cause them to come back. This is always God's heart. He's a God that is full of grace, mercy, long-suffering, patient, and gives people an opportunity to say, when you've gone wrong, I want to see you come back. I want to give you opportunity to come back to me and receive the blessing that I ultimately have for you. So the clouds are stopped. Rain is held back. Now, other miracles that were done by Elijah would be, you know, making a poor widow's oil and food last throughout this drought. And then Elijah went and raised that woman's son back from the dead. That's pretty awesome miracle. But then we come to another great showdown with Elijah and Ahab. It's a great story that I know you're very familiar with. Chapter 18, verse 17. 
Let's look at that. Chapter 18, verse 17. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you will call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, well, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Challenge laid, challenge accepted. This is what's happening. And I'm sure that these false prophets are all thinking, I don't know if Elijah recognizes that he's playing right into our hands. This could be what they're thinking because Baal was the god of, you know, um, agriculture, their crops, god of weather. He supplied, you know, what they needed for watering their plant. And so they're thinking, this is our God. Now, I don't know what excuse they're making for the last three years when the rain hasn't been happening. But now they're thinking, okay, we're going to call upon our God. We got all of our 450 prophets of Baal. Well, he's the God of the weather. Surely we're going to have this happen now for us. Elijah steps up. Or sorry, the, the prophets of Baal. They go about now doing their business, calling upon their God to come and, and do something, but nothing's happening. And Elijah starts taunting them a little bit. Oh, maybe, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's away. And, and, and what, you know, is kind of really in the, in the original language and some translations kind of allude to is that maybe he's off relieving himself. He's in the bathroom. Maybe you need to really shout that out a little bit louder or give him a second, you know, to finish up. And then he'll kind of respond to you. But he's kind of taunting them a little bit. I like that about Elijah. I'd probably be doing the same, and it's not good, but I do. And so there's Elijah, and he's, he's kind of, you know, just pushing a little bit. And they start, you know, they're cutting themselves. They're just doing all these pagan practices to try to, like, you know, muster up this, this God who's not a God at all, who's nothing, a figment of their imagination to try to respond. Well, nothing happens. So Elijah's like, okay. My turn. And Elijah steps up the ante now. He's like, you know what? Get some water. Pour it all around the wood. Douse the sacrifice in it. Build a trench on it. Let's just soak this thing. Because now it's going to really look cool when this thing catches fire because it's been soaked in water. This is really now going to show that I'm serving the one true God. And then he prays. Look at verse 36 of chapter 18, verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel 
and I am your servant, and that I've done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. That's pretty amazing. Elijah, with great faith, just turns to the Lord and says, God, you're the one. I'm your servant. Do your work here. And that fire came down, and it just devoured everything to the point where it showed everybody, oh man, truly, he is God. I remember what Elijah said earlier. How long do we falter between two opinions? Joshua instructed the people before they entered the land, choose now this day whom you'll serve, or after they come to the land, choose now this day whom you will serve. See, God doesn't want lukewarm Christians. He wants you to choose who you're going to follow. There's only one God, and it's the Lord, Yahweh, Jesus Christ. Have you attached yourself to him fully today? Where's your life at are you faltering between two things somebody once said the only thing that's in the middle of the road is yellow streaks and dead skunks it's oftentimes the case nothing forced in the middle ground it's time for us to choose who we're going to serve don't falter between two two opinions are you fully wholeheartedly attached to the lord jesus christ today Because he is God. He is the only one that can save. Now, James says something in in James chapter 5, verse 17. He says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I find that interesting. I go, I would like to have a nature like Elijah. That'd be cool. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, I think, as we'll see here, that Elijah was a man with great faith, but he's also a man of the flesh that oftentimes, you know, succumb to fear and doubt. In fact, here he is, coming off a great defeat of these false prophets and of their false gods, and yet, at the word that Jezebel was looking to take him out, Elijah began to fear. He's just seen God do an incredible work. Go up against 450 prophets of Baal. And tells that there's another 400 prophets of Asher. There's, there's 850. And he's gone up against them all. And now one woman is breathing down death threats on him. And he freaks out and he flees. He's a man with a nature like ours. That can quickly succumb to fear. Rather than faith. Fear and faith can't coexist when we begin to be those that are walking in faith and not faith in faith but faith in God that begins to push the fear aside but if we're walking in fear that begins to douse the faith and override that how we need to be those that are walking in faith now Elijah is going to be given a little bit of a, a lesson here he's going to flee and yet he's on the run and God's going to send an angel 
bake him a cake, strengthen him. But then the Lord says in verse 11 of chapter 19, so jump forward to chapter 19 and verse 11. Here's what God says to Elijah. Chapter 19, verse 11. Then God said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a still small voice. Elijah has been used to the spectacular so far, hasn't he? He's seen a lot, man. Wouldn't you love to be there experiencing these things? Raising a child back to life? Seeing fire come down from heaven and devour even stones? But Elijah discovered something this day, that the Lord isn't always speaking through the spectacular. Though a mighty wind came, nothing. Or an earthquake. Or fire. Sometimes we're looking for the spectacular. We're saying, Lord, speak to me. And we're waiting for the house to shake. We're waiting for that audible voice. And yet, sometimes, and might I say, the majority of the time, it's a still small voice. How do we hear the still small voice? We need to quiet ourselves. We need to take time to be still and quiet before the Lord. That's a hard thing to do these days, isn't it? Because we're bombarded by distractions. We're bombarded by noise. We're bombarded by busyness where we're just going, going, going. And yet we're wondering, how come we're not hearing from the Lord? Are we stopping and resting and quieting ourselves before the Lord so that we might hear that still small voice? I love the story of a family that had gotten together and the, the grandpa had a great you know, family heirloom watch and some of the watch went missing and everybody was panicking. Oh, we got to find that thing. And everybody's looking, turning out couch cushions and couldn't find it. And everybody's getting really upset and sad and nothing happened. Well, everybody went to bed that night and just hoping that it'd turn up. Well, the next day, young little Johnny comes to his grandpa and he says, Grandpa, I found your watch. Grandpa's like, wow, how'd you find that watch? Johnny said, I just got up when nobody was here and listened for the ticking. That's often how it is for us, isn't it? Where we just need to get up and remove ourselves from the distractions, the business and the noise and say, Lord, I just want to hear from you. I just want you to speak into my life. Because it's not often, as much as we'd like it to be, a mighty wind or the trembling of an earthquake or fire coming down from heaven, but it's that still small voice. May we allow the Lord to speak to us. Now Elijah was fearing and thinking he's the only one left. He said earlier, Lord, when he fled from Jezebel, he was like even saying, Lord, take my life. That's it. Just take me now. (laughs) Take me home, Jesus, you know. And the Lord comes and comforts him, but he says here also, That in in chapter 19, verse 18, he says, Yet I've reserved 7,000 Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah thought that he was all alone. He's it. The Lord says, Elijah, you don't understand. You don't know the work that I've got going on. You don't know what's happening behind the scenes. 
God always has a work in place, a plan to move forward, an option to go in. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we wonder how things are ever going to get better or work out. Yet God has everything in control and is moving everything along perfectly to fulfill his plans. We just need to trust him and enjoy the ride. Let's be those operating more in faith than we are in fear. Trusting the Lord. Taking time to allow him to lead us. Taking time to hear him. And making sure that we are those following him and following his word. Alright, so First Kings, we'll end it right there. Next Wednesday, we'll go through Second Kings and continue to pick up the chaos going in and on among the, the kings of Israel and Judah.